Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. Yes indeed we are here on the hump day. We uh, enjoyed our time at Mississippi Blood Services yesterday. Hope that uh, lots of folks went out and or donating blood. Saw several. A few stopped by and said they enjoyed the program. Really appreciate that. But we're back in the Super Talk headquarters today, and a whole lot of stuff is going on. We got Aaron Rossetti, opinion contributor to Super Talk Mississippi News, joining us uh, on the program at 1037, and then Ryan Hunt co-founder and COO of Schloop. That is a footwear manufacturing operation in Meridian, Mississippi. That's what's on tap today. In the meantime, I guess, in the state of Mississippi, the big news is that James Williams III, a man convicted in 2005 of a double murder, walked away yesterday on a 3-2 vote from the Mississippi Parole Board. He is now, is Mr. Williams, 38 years old, a free man, arrested in 2001 for the murders of James Williams, Jr. and Cindy Lassiter Mangum Williams. Jeez. And that was his stepmother and father. I don't know about this. This, um, of course, <clears throat> Representative Price Wallace was interviewed about this by Paul Gallo. And then, uh, I believe that was Monday. And yesterday, I believe Senator, or was it this morning? Senator Daniel Sparks was on with Gallo discussing this. So you wonder, do we need to maybe update some legislation with respect to serving time for such heinous acts. I don't know that I've heard a person yet, Rhino, that just in my anecdotal circles that has said, yeah, I think parole was the right decision. What do you think? Yeah, it's been a 
wildly unpopular decision by the parole board, and I think you would have pretty raucous support for changing legislation to no longer allow parole for murder. Yeah, I, whether or not just simple we change to that point uh, would be certainly the kind of a terminal situation. You you commit murder, you're you're done, you're gone, you're incarcerated. I mean, I feel like life. the vast majority of people would agree. Murder slash homicide, whatever you want to call it in legalese. Certainly murder one, right? right. Yeah. Rape, child molestation, incest. I mean, there's you can count on two hands, and or less than two hands, the number of crimes that you should not be allowed parole. And I think if you put that to a vote or let the people say, you'd find agreement. And, you know, Auditor Shad White clarified for us in some research his office has done, clarified just who's in jail in Mississippi, in prison. And I think there's a perception out there by many that a lot of space is being consumed by nonviolent drug offenders. And he did the research to clarify that, and what we found is that that's really not the case. Now, I think it was at one time, but I think that uh, that's changed in the last few years. And based on his data and his research, that's not the case. You know, most of the people that are behind bars committed crimes that, frankly, supports the idea of them being in jail. And uh, it's, it's not only keeping, you're not only keeping criminals off the streets so they can't go commit more crimes, you're at least hoping that you're deterring others from doing so. Now, when you look at this situation on the subway in New York, that seems upside down. Here's a person who saw what, uh, at least from all accounts, and you know this will be this will be exposed in the court proceedings, in the depositions and testimony, that this person stepped in, this Marine, stepped in to avoid things, prevent things from getting out of control and protecting others on the subway. I don't think he stepped in and acted and with the intent of committing murder. I don't think that was the point. I think he was just trying to get someone detained and prevent them from going crazier. What kind of message does that send, though, that to the average person out there, don't get involved when you see something bad going down like that. You may end up getting arrested and possibly going to jail, convicted of some crime and going to jail. So, you know, and all we have is video at this point. I don't know that there's been too much said that I've seen by others that, who were present on the subway. But you know they will be. That'll be part of the proceedings. Seems kind of upside down in this country, where we're decriminalizing crime and all in the name of equity and feelings and nonsense. Yeah, and it's it's a, a definite concern for sure. 
I think it was a 3-2 vote in favor of him getting released. They should make it a unanimous vote. That's on the ceasefire tax line. I I still believe that it, if you ask your everyday average Joe, you did a poll, and you gave them the list of murder, rape, incest, child molestation, those kind of things, they would say, you should not be paroled. Yeah. So I don't think it should even come up to a vote if... In the future, some evidence comes out, you have a new trial, and then you have the results of that trial. This this whole paroling people because they were on their bestest behavior, they've already crossed the line that society says you can't cross. Yeah. How are you going to trust them to not cross the line again, especially when you see it happen time and time again? I think that's right. It's, uh, it's and I, I don't know what was uh, the rationale. I guess I should say. I haven't researched it. Maybe the members of the parole board have expressed it. I haven't I haven't looked at it, so I, I'm I'm sorry I can't report that. And and what I mean by that is their rationale uh to let this person out, Mr. Williams, to release him. I don't know. Haven't seen haven't seen that. It's a five person board, correct? Yes. I think it's a five-person board. They are... Well, like with anything, if you don't have transparency, then the populace is left to fill in the gaps with whatever they can come up with. Yeah, and they are appointed by the governor as well. Um, So it's just an interesting situation at a minimum. And... uh, it doesn't, as you said, I think the best way to describe it, it, it hasn't been popular. It, I think that's a way to to couch it. Um, it's a problem. And again, I think this, this uh, movement in this country to, as you said, decriminalize crime in the name of equity and to try to make statistics look better, that doesn't change what actually happened. Doesn't change reality. You can, of course, you can step in and and uh, re-engineer the process in a way that really is not fair. Honestly, is not fair. Is not uh, reasonable. Is not the in the best service of society. But liberals and leftists and other losers like them can't succeed in reality so they remove themselves from reality into la la land gotcha where it's totally fine for somebody to walk into a store and take nine hundred dollars worth of stuff i agree um so senator daniel sparks listening sent some information about parole uh statutes in mississippi and i'll go over that when we come back and so now i'm but in reading it and you'll see why when we come back I don't understand then how this person got parole. Because according to what he said is they're not supposed to get parole. So I'm not sure what's going on there. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Just getting started here on Midday. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. 
He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk, Mississippi. in the Element Well Studios. It's midday. Coming up next, Aaron Rossetti, opinion contributor, Super Talk Mississippi News. So the senator's kind enough to um, be in touch with me this morning via text while we're discussing this matter with uh, one James Williams being released. James Williams III, convicted in 2005 of killing his stepmother and father. Walked away from prison yesterday based on release granted by the Mississippi State Parole Board. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, Rhino, what the Senator's saying is that presently, under the present statute passed in 2021, that certain crimes are not eligible for parole. That includes... Uh, sex crimes, first-degree murder, murder two, human trafficking, drug trafficking, habitual offenders day for day. So, but that wasn't the case, is the way I understand it, trying to piece this together, when Mr. Williams was convicted. So perhaps his time sentenced, his sentence is consistent with law in effect at that point when he was when he was convicted and sentenced. That's the way I'm trying to piece this together from the senator. And if he's listening, if I if I misstated that, please let me know, Senator. He said, in fact, that's what he said. Yeah, he gave me the thumbs up. Okay. So what he does say though, and I think this is the point the senator made with uh, Paul. I don't understand how we are denying, I'm quoting him here, I think he's fine with this, I don't understand how we are denying so many nonviolent parole requests and then doing things like this. I agree. It's bad look. I'm not deeply knowledgeable of the facts of the particular case, though. That's fair enough. But still, he got convicted of a double murder. So I think there's also something... Uh, related to the fact that he was 17 at the time. He said he gets some time consideration, and the senator references Miller versus Alabama. Okay, it references a case. But what he does point out, the senator, Daniel Sparks, says, I want to know if the parole board adhered to the statute that And he sent me a copy of it, Rhino, the statute says, and, it, and I'm looking at it, it says, the victim or designated, I'm reading from the statute, family member shall be provided an opportunity to be heard by the board before the board makes a decision regarding release on parole. The board shall consider whether any restitution ordered has been paid in full. 
Makes sense. I, I thought that was always the case. Maybe I'm missing something there, and, and maybe this hasn't been in effect for terribly long, but does it not make sense, though, that you would hear from the victims' families in situations like that before you made that decision? I mean, the victims were his family. Yeah. True. So, yeah, so the senator just says, I want to know if, if they complied with that part of the statute. It seems like the parole board has a certain level of autonomy, whether it's legislated or they've self-appointed it. I agree. I think that's what's going on here. And, and um, I would, uh, I'd be shocked if the legislature doesn't take this matter up, that this particular release doesn't spur them uh, really taking a hard look at uh, current statute and how the parole board operates and how they come to these decisions to uh, release somebody that looks to me like they ought to be in jail, still in jail. And I think you're right. I think most people on the, on the street in Mississippi would say, yeah, that person needs to be locked up. Hmm. And I agree with the center. It's a bad look when, wait, uh, we've got these nonviolent people that we're not granting parole to, but yet we're granting parole to someone who killed their stepmother and father? Yeah. And Miller versus Alabama, by the way, is a Supreme Court ruling that says you cannot give a juvenile life without parole. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Makes sense. I, I wasn't even aware of such a, uh, such a ruling, such a case. 2012. Wow. Been around a while. We'll keep on tracking it. Uh, Scott Soso said, didn't one of the parole members just step down when all this came to light? Yes, uh, we did report on that. And uh, just so you know, guys will know, folks, it's uh, Tony Smith from the Poplarville area. was appointed by the governor. Their four-year terms, I believe he was appointed in 2020. This is year three of his four-year term, and he has resigned from the board. So the governor will have to replace him with a new appointment, five-member board. Sixty percent of nonviolent crimes were denied parole this year. I agree 100 percent with Senator Sparks, says Ben from Madison. He also points out that he believes the legislature should take away the autonomy of the parole board, especially in regards to violent crime. Well, I, I don't know, Ben, that it's necessary to strip their autonomy and their independence, I just think we need to have statute in place, which is something that the legislature can do, does have power, that perhaps would prevent these some sorts of things from happening. And but again, it comes back to transparency. The parole board could have answered all these questions with a statement, but they've been mum the whole time. I, I, and I agree with that. And, and if any of them are listening, we invite them to come on the program to have a discussion with us and it will be done in a respectful and civil way. I can absolutely guarantee that. But we'd like to hear the story. I think the people have a right to know, certainly. They do work for the people. And I think you're right, Rhino. This is a matter of, of transparency and being open. Lord knows we've got enough problems with that at the federal level that has come to light in the last week. Good grief. Should the governor be able to override the board's decisions since he appointed them? You know, 
I'm not sure that I would agree with that because I, I understand the premise of the idea. I think having some degree of independence there. I think the only recourse the governor would have would be to, all right, you're getting an, you're 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 gone. Yeah. Like they couldn't impact an individual case. But I think you might be able to reappoint members. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, you could extend that to other matters as well that boards appointed by the governor oversee. Let's take the state superintendent as a, a recent example. Now the governor appoints four of the eight members, the Speaker of the House appoints two, the Lieutenant Governor appoints two. But then, and uh, I just want to call attention to the fact that we, we called this back in November that this was not a good hire. I'm, I'm talking about the superintendent. And we had reasons for that, and it was researching some of the um, some of his comments about the state of Mississippi, some of his writings, his philosophy, his leanings. And, of course, he did not get confirmed by the Senate. Maybe they felt the same way. But that's another situation where, okay, you don't like what the board did as the governor, and then you override that. I, I think that maybe is a, a, little, a bit extreme and not Yeah, it's putting too much power in one person's hand. Yeah, that's why we have the systems we do. Yeah, he, Derek and Greenwood points out not only did he kill them, but dismembered them for disposal. And I, and I heard from someone in law enforcement, I don't know if you've heard this as well, that at first when they came upon the scene and the dismembered bodies, they didn't know it was a human being. Didn't resemble that. Yeah. Oh, gosh, how dare you proles question them. Rose questioned them. I'm not sure what Thomas and Greenwood say in there. Can Tate remove the board? I'll have to say I'm not honestly sure what state statute, state law permits with respect to removing appointments. I don't know. I don't know if the governor can rescind and terminate a person while they're I mean, just on serving? the face of it, it seems like if you're the person that can hire someone, you should be able to fire them. It, it does, and, it, and, there, and my guess is, I, I'd like, for example, I've never really read the part of the law where I got appointed in a much smaller situation to the lottery board. I'm sure there's some avenue, some provisions in the law that uh, we must adhere to, and if not, we're subject to being removed. I'd have to look. But, you know, I don't know that you could just say, well, I'm not happy with who you paroled there. I'm removing you. I think you'd probably have to violate something, you know, in the law that uh, discusses the responsibilities of a board member. We're coming right back with Aaron Rossetti. Stay with us. Stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi.
It's Bill Withers bumping us into this segment of Middays. We are live in the Element Wealth Studios on this hump day. Joining us now, Aaron Rossetti, opinion contributor with Super Talk Mississippi News. Aaron, good to see you. How are you this morning? Check your audio. You there, Aaron? Trying to get your audio going here. Not sure if it's on your end or ours. Got to turn the microphone on. All right. There, there we, we go. go. Gotcha. I had you muted, so I didn't say anything. I had myself muted, so I didn't say anything before. Great. <laughs> awesome. How are y'all? Uh, we're doing great. Uh, I read uh, your article published on the Super Talk uh, website. Uh, you just published it earlier this month. And uh, it's a fascinating story. And, and the first thing I will share with you, it's not a whole lot different than my personal story, honestly. Uh, I graduated, really? moved out of, out of state, was looking to set the world on fire doing that, traveled around, and realized that uh, my heart was really in, at my home in Mississippi, and he came back yeah. and started a company, and do not regret that whatsoever. But you're at that age, you, you did the same, explored, uh, and you also interact with lots of folks your age that uh, I hope you're hearing and seeing the same from. So it, it was, it was well-written, yeah. so share your story. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the inspiration for this, I was asked to contribute to the Next Up column. Um, that's a partnership between Super Talk Mississippi and Coast Term Professionals, as well as the Mississippi Gulf Coast Chamber of Commerce. And my first instinct was to write about my personal journey of coming back to the coast and why I chose to do so. And there, like you just said, there's so many young people in this state who are choosing the same route and surprisingly are coming back and using their entrepreneurial spirit to make the area better in my area directly, but also the state as a whole. Mm -hmm. And it's just great to see. Yeah, that's awesome. So you grew up, uh, I got from the article that you grew up in uh, St. Martin, right? Which is um, around Ocean Springs, the Iberville. And and then, and tell us about your, your academic, your major and your work there. Sure. Yeah, of course. So at um, at St. Martin, I graduated in 2010. But while I was in high school, I attended Mississippi Governor's School. And it is still a program that is uh, funded by the state in some capacities. And now I think it's two weeks versus three weeks. But while I was at that leadership experience during the summer of my junior year, I really, I just, I felt like it was a catalyst to my personal growth, my leadership growth. And it gave me that fire to make Mississippi better. Um, it really lit it within me. And so I graduated and then I attended LSU and my undergraduate was in mass communication with a concentration in public relations and history. And um, after that, I decided to uh, move to Chicago. I had an internship opportunity through a, an award that I received through the Public Relations Student Society of America. And it allowed me any any office in the US, except for their really small offices at Edelman Public Relations. 
and I chose Chicago. It just seemed like, you know, totally different from what I was used to with our tiny town of St. Martin and then, you know, South Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a big culture shock in a way, but it taught me a lot about myself and how much, you know, how much I loved the area that I was from. So were you working in, in downtown Chicago specifically, or were you in one of the suburbs? I was, so I was in the Loop. Uh, I was yeah. in the Aeon building. Yes. Yeah. So it's directly across from um, Maggie Daly Park, and, you know, there's so much to see in that area. So I felt grateful that I had such a great, you know, it was just real estate, perfect real estate um, to really experience Chicago and all that it, the downtown affords. and. Our office was right across the street from Grant Park, which is where Lollapalooza yep. is, and you know, it's just a lot. It's very, it's very lively in that area of the city. Yeah, no doubt. So, what uh, what were some of the things you heard from the natives there in Chicago? Many of whom, I'm guessing, had never met someone from Mississippi. Right, and that was absolutely the first. Um, response that I would get for most of the people that I would meet, you know, first of all, I, d I don't really have much of an accent. You can't tell where I'm from yeah. <laughs> unless I say y'all or, you know, <laughs> something else comes out. But for the most part, I, I have people couldn't identify where I was specifically. And so you're right. Most people had never met someone that was a native Mississippian and had chosen a large city like that. And it was fun for me. You know, I got to change perceptions and I was able to help tell our story in a way and, and really change the narrative of what people thought about who we are and, and what we represent as a state. So that was really fun for me. It's always been a, a great challenge for me to try to overcome. You find, did you find that they had some preconceived stereotypes about Mississippi and the people of Mississippi? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think everywhere has its, of course, stereotypes sure. and what to expect. and. Mississippi is not, you know, it doesn't shy away from that, unfortunately. Yeah. And and what you see nationally or what, what gets the headlines for our state is not necessarily indicative of who we are and and um, and what we enjoy to do. So, you know, I came from a small rural area, yes, in St. Martin. I grew up next to a cow pasture and my grandfather was a cowboy. And, <laughs> you know, I had that background, but I was able to explain how, you know, we're really doing some incredible work in the state and, Again, there are so many people that have dedicated themselves to, to making the state better and improving it in different ways. So I think that what the preconceived notions were, I was able to shift them a little bit with who I am and what I represent. Sure. I'm, I'm quite sure that was the case as well. So what was the catalyst for you returning to Mississippi? Honestly, it was 10 years after Hurricane Katrina, and it was in 2015 but I started to see some momentum, um, some interest in the area that I'm from, especially and and more development. So not just you know residentially, but also commercially. Mm -hmm. And I saw a position open through Coastal Mississippi. It's called Coastal Mississippi now. At that point, it was uh, Visit Mississippi Gulf Coast, the Regional Tourism Bureau, and it was for a PR manager. And that was what I was doing in Chicago. But I was doing it for really global brands like Starbucks and Hilton Worldwide. And I thought, well, if I'm doing great work here for these massive businesses and companies and organizations, then why can't I do it for a place that I'm super passionate about and people that I want to help represent and small businesses I want to see thrive? 
And that was the catalyst for me coming back here. I had an interview with the executive director on a random trip to the coast. And um, hmm. it just made sense for me to be here. The, it just fell into place. Well, that's awesome. We, we're glad you returned. So in your circles of peers and uh, in your demographic age in particular, are you finding that maybe the worm is turning a bit, that they're thinking seriously about staying in Mississippi, launching a career, perhaps uh, some sort of entrepreneurial project as well? You know, it's interesting. I've got a lot of friends that are out of the state, of course, and, and international as well. Um, but there are so many people that I've met by moving back here that I didn't know growing up, you know, that had relocated here or uh, maybe were from different towns in the state and decided to move to the coast. And I think the sentiment is that Mississippi has so much potential and it hasn't been unleashed yet. Yeah. And so why can't our age group really take hold of that and, and make our state, you know, better in different ways? And, and there are so many people that are committed to that mission and it's organic. It's not like, you know, you're putting a call out and saying, we desperately need your talent here. There's so many stories written about that, of course. And, and there, there's a huge conversation about the brain drain. But the people that have decided to, to take a chance on coming back here or, or moving here for the first time are doing that every single day. They're making the state better. Are they finding it, uh, are you finding them to be optimistic about their prospects in Mississippi with what whatever their uh, career pursuits are? From what I can tell, and this is kind of a microcosm, you know, I don't have a huge um, gauge necessarily. I've got my finger on the pulse in my area. Yeah. But it does seem that there's optimism. And yeah. I think, again, that's, you know, we're, we're so many years removed from such a devastating natural disaster. And we're seeing this, this comeback, this energy, this resurgence in my direct area. And it's working. Mm. You know? Good. Good. Well, Aaron, it's been a joy to speak with you. And congratulations on your success thus far. And I'm confident... Uh, that will continue, and we need good, bright uh, people such as yourself in the state of Mississippi to keep it uh, things going. And I also agree with you, we're not even close to realizing our full potential, and it's folks like you we need to help us do that. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. in the Element Wealth Studios. It is midday. So, um, just talking about this parole situation in the state of Mississippi, Ben from Madison says, 
Appreciate y'all discussing this. I feel like it is important. It is important to the people. Also, Ben said he enjoyed the interview with Aaron Rossetti. It's always heartening, Ben, when we have uh, young folks such as Miss Rossetti that are willing to plant a stick, if you will, in the ground in Mississippi and and uh, make it their home and pursue their career here, launch a business, perhaps. Absolutely, it's. Uh, it's essential, honestly, to the overall well-being of our state, to all citizens, that young people make this their home and uh, are gainfully employed or are entrepreneurs and start businesses. That's how we keep the thing rolling, honestly. And there's already concerns about so-called brain drain, what we talk about all the time, and I think about how great our our um, institutions of higher learning are in the state. We're blessed in that regard, but so many of the fantastic graduates are not able to locate work, secure work in the state, and they and they therefore leave. And we hope they come back. That's the that's about. And and in many cases, you can understand why they leave because whatever it is they have acquired their degree in, there are no jobs for. I, I talked about my visit to Ole Miss in the School of Accountancy a couple of weeks ago and spoke directly to many of the uh, juniors and seniors in the little breakout sessions, which I thought was a great idea on the part of the dean and his team to have those three different sessions, 15 or so juniors and seniors in each, and went around the room and asked them, what, uh, where are you from, and what are your plans once you graduate, earn your degree? And Unfortunately, I think only two intended to stay in Mississippi. Now, in fairness, probably 60% of those were from out of state that had come to the university to earn their degree in accounting. And so they're moving back. Most of them, honestly, are going to work for firms and offices that are not in the same town or even in the same state from where they came, where they, where their permanent residence is, their home. So it's, uh, it's an issue that uh, we need to continue to address. And so uh, how do we fix that problem? we got to have private sector entities that hire those sorts of graduates. In the case of the accounting grads, they all seek work with the big four public accounting firms, and we only have one office representing those four in Mississippi, in Jackson, it's KPMG, and they really don't have the need to couldn't, couldn't fill their ranks and take on all those graduates, not just from Ole Miss, but the other like, accounting schools as well. In the state. I mean, that'd be the same thing as having one singular law firm being able to hire all the lawyers graduating yeah. at Ole Miss. Not going to happen. And so, how do we get the other firms to open up offices here? Well, they need corporations that need their services. It's, it literally is a, a sequence that has to be followed. And if we can attract more of these, these sorts of businesses that require big four-level accounting, consulting, advisory services, then they'll 
build offices here, and they'll hire people. That's the key. And that's, by the way, that's nothing new. That's been the case in, in Mississippi with respect to the big top echelon of accounting firms since I was in school 40 years ago. It was the same deal. But again, we need those kinds of, of companies to uh, locate in our state. On the federal, in the federal world, national news, it's the debt ceiling is sort of dominating that and the Durham report. Which is, Although there is so much spin on the Durham report, it's hilarious. It's ridiculous. What What do you got? What are you saying? Oh, there's so many different headlines from liberal rags trying to spin it like, oh, it's a nothing burger. Really? Really? It's a nothing burger that the then-sitting president of the United States was made aware by his buddy, the Democrat candidate, that they were trying to railroad the opposing candidate? Right. With the help of intelligence agencies and the government largesse? That's a nothing burger? Right. And what is supposed to be the most competent, prestigious law enforcement agency on the planet, it's disturbing at a minimum. And you hear If the, laws weren't broken, laws need to be written so that it doesn't uh, happen again. No doubt about it. You hear this narrative, it's the end of democracy when somebody has to prove that they're who they are in order to vote. No, the end of democracy... It's when you've weaponized and politicized the FBI. That's the end of democracy and the rest of government, the largesse, as you say. It's time for Super Talk News and Fox News coming right back. Stay with us. And now, and now. another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Indeed, only the young by journey means it's hour two of the program from the Element Wealth Studios. We thank you so much for joining us today. Ryan Hunt, co-founder and COO of Schloop. Schloop, this is a footwear manufacturer headquartered and founded in Meridian. We'll have uh, Mr. Hunt in the Element Wealth Studios at 12.20 today. Breaking news. Um, is that McCarthy, you know who he is, the Speaker of the House, says, I think we can get a deal done by... There we go, the breaking news! (laughs) Oh, gosh. Of course, right behind that, not so long ago, it was Brian Williams. (laughs) Who... uh, Failed at math, obviously. You know who he is, the lying Brian Williams, who said that that the amount that Bloomberg invested in his campaign for president at the time, that was breaking news. Why, he could have sent every person in America a million dollars. <laughs> you missed it by just a few zeros there, Brian. He's always had a bit of a hard time with 
stretching the truth or exaggerating. <laughs> the memes were fantastic, though, during that period. Wasn't it the same they? guy that was talking about how in Iraq he was in a helicopter yes. that got shot out, and oh, everybody's yeah. like, no, you no, weren't. You <laughs> oh, the memes were awesome, though. Here I am on the moon, remember that one? So that's what uh, McCarthy says the groups uh, are meeting about the debt ceiling, which the Secretary of the Treasury, old Janet Yellen, misinflation is transitory. <laughs> she says, June 1, we're running out of money. I uh, can't pay the bills. So they've been meeting, and the President has rearranged his schedule, if you've seen this, so that he's, he's canceled a couple of stops. He's traveling around so that he can address this matter of critical importance. And uh, at this point, what they're hung up on, it's insane that they're hung up on this, are rules around a person needing to either be working or seeking work to qualify for certain welfare benefits. Why is that so objectionable to the left? I know that may be a rhetorical question, why is that so hard? What's, why is that such a problem? What I don't understand is how the same guy, that being our president, that is opposed to this requirement that you must be seeking work or working to receive certain benefits, also takes victory laps on a daily basis about jobs created. Well, then it should be no problem, right? If you're creating all these jobs, then all these people that are receiving benefits from the government should have no problem finding a job. And in fact, just yesterday after the show, he says, since taking office, we've seen bigger jobs gains in two years than any president has in four. But if House Republicans push us into default, eight million jobs could be lost destroying our economic progress. It's clear default is not an option. So what aggravates me about this self-aggrandizing of job creation is that, again, that I can't think of a policy that came out of the Biden administration that produced jobs. All we really did was allow businesses to open back up after we shut them all down, and thus we lost jobs. But then we said, okay, COVID is no longer a thing, according to the, the brilliant scientist in government. Go back to work. Open up the economy. And, of course, people went back to work. But yet, he's pointing to that as job creation without taking into account the fact that, well, no, we, we lost those jobs because we told businesses you can't open, you can't sell, you can't operate. So that's, not only is that disingenuous, when you look at the labor participation rate and the number of people working in the country, which is best measured by that, we're still not up to where we were pre-pandemic. 
So I don't understand what there is that's so laudable. But again, he's just trying to make this point that to get people to agree with him on his positions in negotiating the debt ceiling. Both sides have already said, we're not going to default. We understand. This is not an option. We get it. But here, Mr. President, and I'm sort of speaking on behalf of the Speaker, we've passed legislation in the Republican-controlled House, which raises the debt ceiling and simply asks for reasonable spending reductions, which really don't even reduce spending below present levels. They just arrest future increases in spending. That's pretty reasonable. And so there, it's being reported that maybe that Biden and the, pardon me, the Democrats are getting on board with the idea of, let's just pull back on the $150 billion of COVID relief money still hanging out there. Maybe we don't need that anymore. Oh, wow, what a great concession <laughs> that is. But what they really don't like are the work requirements. That's part of the bill passed by the House, part of the, uh, the Republican position. And then the other thing they, they don't like is defunding the 87,000 IRS agents. They, uh, they are absolutely ecstatic over filling those ranks out and giving a bunch of them guns to boot. But it's, it's just disingenuous because I think a lot of people do look at that and say, yeah, the president's created all these jobs. No, it's not true. It's just not true. He goes on to say after that one, he says, if America defaults on its debt, our economy would fall into recession and our nation's global reputation would be damaged. MAGA House Republicans should stop playing brinksmanship <laughs> with the full faith and credit of the United States. That's just not honest, though, Mr. President. It's a manufactured crisis. Yeah, by them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Republicans gave them an idea, gave them a plan. They kept saying, where's your plan? Well, there's the plan. Right. I don't like it. Tough. That's exactly right. Liz Warren went to the floor yesterday. You know, how about a beer, hon, Liz Warren? <laughs> Liawatha. <laughs> Republicans are holding the U.S. economy hostage and demanding a tornado of red tape. Uh, and she's something that would strip away health care and other critical assistance from millions of families. They should stop playing games and join Democrats so the U.S. doesn't default on our bills. One of these days, I'm finally going to get around to creating the buzzword bingo board. <laughs> bingo board. So that any time these dumb Democrats start spouting buzzwords without any inkling of what they actually mean, we can play buzzword bingo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's... Uh... It's so incredible the way they twist and turn the words and use these, you're right, these, these uh, familiar terms. They're just refrains, honestly. It's, it's kind of sickening, <laughs> to say the truth. Because I guarantee you, if you pressed her, she could not point to anything in the Republican plan that is a, quote-unquote, tornado of red tape. Because there's not. There's absolutely not. So Especially the, considering they passed an omnibus bill that was how big? 
it's like 3,000 pages, $1.7 trillion. That's a tsunami of red tape, no doubt in her about own it. words. No doubt about it. So thus far, though, the biggest thing that Democrats have signaled they could go along with is simply clawing back some unspent coronavirus funds. Incredible. Biden said, well, that's on the table. How could you even blink on that one? I mean, that's just like a no-brainer, right? You're the one that ended the emergency, the public health emergency, and should have. So the Democrats are starting to talk about some backup plans as well. We know we got some very contentious races here in the state of Mississippi as we approach the primaries in uh, in August and then the general election in November. We'll talk about that as well. But a whole lot more here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi from the Element Well Studios. Yeah, so something else that's going on with respect to the debt ceiling is consumer debt. Consumer debt. It passed $17 trillion for the first time ever in our country. Fresh high, seventeen trillion. New mortgage originations, including refinancing, totaled three hundred and twenty-three billion. That's the lowest level since twenty fourteen. So no surprise with interest rates rising, there has been a decrease in the demand for mortgages and mortgage originations. You're starting to see, Rhino, you may have some some in your circle, folks buying groceries with their credit cards, financing their groceries, and using the buy now, pay later systems as well. Which is, I have a bit of a, a heart attack <clears throat> moment, seems like once a month, after I've paid my rent, and then they send out a mass email that has in the title, late rent and it's always an ad for some organization they've partnered with that allows you to split your rent into two three or four payments over the course of a month gotcha probably i've yet to get used to it i've been in this place for a year now open up the email and it says late rent and i'm like hold up hold whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> i paid that i know i paid it very then, very effective because that'll make you open it. oh yeah very effective and so, my guess is they'll handle that for you interest-free. I honestly haven't looked at the fine details of it. I mean, the ba- so I always get a little agitated. I think it's kind of an offshoot of the what's called the BNPL buy now pay uh, yeah. later industry, where you can choose the length of time, the number of payments, the number of installments. 
And usually there's one that, of course, is requires you to pay it off in a shorter period of time that's interest-free. And then I mean, it's got to be making some money for them because they were able to afford ads in the last Super Bowl. It's the last couple Super Bowls. It's your information, and I, it's I think this is lost on a lot of people as to how they make money on that because they don't. If it's interest free and they're just loaning you money and you're using their money for say two months, three months, or whatever, it's information. Right? You're agreeing to some stuff, and that's fine. I think that's that's. A fair exchange to a lot of people that are perfectly fine with that. And they, of course, then sell that to other sellers who are trying to get in your pocketbook. It's it's brilliant, honestly. I admit, I've used the BNPL on just standard retail-type purchases, items I've, I've purchased online where those options are available. Okay, you're going to let me pay this over three months with no interest? I'm down. I You know? You got my information. You probably already got it anyhow, honestly. So, and that that industry is growing. But it's um, the trend that concerns economists is when people start buying their groceries and their necessities of life, and they're financing that. Or they're, they're using these BNPL programs and so forth. That's a little bit more of concern, and it's an indicator of the overall health of the consumer. Target reported their sales were down somewhat. Home Depot last week, their sales were down. So you're starting to see uh, retail sales, which is a good gauge of consumer sentiment and spending and health of households, starting to decline. And uh, I think some of that's the helicopter money running out. A lot of that's inflation course. Wages not keeping up with inflation. <clears throat> Thomas and Greenwood uh, sent a note about student debt. We talked about this yesterday. Zero Hedge reports that the, uh, of course, the payments resume uh, in July. We We've shared that many times on the program, which is why the president was rushing to try to push something through to forgive this forgiveness program, which would forgive less than a third of it now, because it's it's up, it's increased. Zero Hedge says it's roughly 7% of U.S. GDP. I think it's actually a little more than that, but okay, for argument's sake. Between 1.5 and 1.7 trillion dollars, it's estimated that the president's plan to forgive student debt would erase 500 to 600 trillion. So, the uh, on this particular, I don't know who this Amy Nixon is. Thomas looks like just somebody that responded to the tweet. She says, it's terrible policy. The resumption of payment will go over great in a recession. This has been terrible policy. Had they resumed payments in late 21, it would have been massively deflationary and could have prevented the need for such a rapid and aggressive hiking cycle by the Fed, she's talking about. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I do think that the postponement and the deferment of student loan repayments did have some impact on 
inflation because it just means people had more money to spend, they spent it. And that drives inflation. It's just more money chasing not enough goods available to buy. That is a inflationary environment. So I'm not sure how much it contributed. I think it did some. But yeah, that's about to hit a bunch of people that are going to have to start repaying. I think you actually shared that you continue to pay yours, right? Yeah, I mean, I've since stopped, but yeah, that's just a, it's a, it was a way for me to go. All right, well, I'm used to paying this much. Yeah, I could stick that in savings instead of giving it to Uncle Sam. Sure, I I actually agree with that. It's just a matter of whether or not you feel confident that when it's resumed that uh, you're prepared for that. And some people, some people can't. They haven't planned for it. You know that. Some people have, and they continue to pay all the way through because they didn't want to get used to having that extra money and building their household finances around that budget. Makes, makes total sense. So how will this affect the election, says Thomas and Greenwood? It depends on whether or not Biden extends it again. Yeah. And if it ends, if it really ends June 30th, and at this point, it looks like the 24-hour news cycle will have churned up plenty more between then and November, to where it might be a a single-issue voter topic mm-hmm. for a small percentage of the population, a small percentage of those students whose loans were deferred, but it won't be the end-all, be-all. Whereas if Biden comes out and says, "You know what? We got to extend it again." Mm-hmm and extends it to October, November. Then it becomes a, hey, vote for me. Look what I did for you. I think that's true. And, of course, the justification for the pause was uh, was the COVID stuff. Now that the PHE, the public health emergency, has been officially expired, I think that would be a legal issue. He could do it. Unfortunately, it would not be the first time he's done something and then just we'll let the courts figure it out. And that's exactly what would happen. And and you have to believe that the courts, given the the nature and the scope of this matter, would act swiftly on that. I would, also imagine it would go all the way to the top, and there isn't a whole lot of swiftly with the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. And there has been... There have been conversations online on social media by people who have had their loans deferred that have just come out and said, "I'm not paying anymore." Yeah, and they plan to just default if that has if that has to happen. Exactly. In a, in a form of protest over their student loans, and it's like, um, maybe that's not the brightest way to protest. It uh, don't get a lot of sympathy, certainly from those who paid theirs or never took any out. And that that seems to be, I guess, omitted from the the thought processes of the Democrats. Liz Warren, of course, is huge, outspoken proponent of forgiveness in a much bigger way than Biden has proposed. She wants it all gone, right? Unbelievable. So Moe says, I've seen furniture stores in Jackson area that advertise no interest for two years. Someone I knew who was no longer with us brought furniture and paid it off in less than two years. At the two-year mark, she received a bill for the interest. They said they would had never claimed there was no interest. I don't know. Um, I, I can tell you this, Mose, that uh, if you are not timely in the making of your payments in the amount required, the minimum payment, 
the fine print in all those contracts says that that could trigger and does trigger interest due accumulated to that point. Um, I feel like, Mose, honestly, what you're describing there is a bit of an anomaly. Uh, if, if that were happening on a regular basis, you'd hear people really screaming about it. And when we come back, I'll actually talk, um, I'll share what I know from people that are in that business and how that works. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Thirty-eight special. Appreciate that, Rhino. On the ceasefire text line, uh, several retailers are using the Afterpay app. Yeah, there there are a few of them. Uh, is it ShopPay? I think's one. PayPal has a PayPal and four. Affirm, I think, maybe the biggest. And then there's Klarna. I think Klarna one. was the one that had the Super Bowl ad. Yeah, makes Wasn't sense. that the one where they had the. I forget her name. She was on Saturday Night Live. She was she played four different smaller versions of a cowgirl. Yeah, to represent the four smaller payments. Yeah, I do remember that. That was, that was a good ad. I thought it was a good ad. Yeah, they're pretty big. Um, I, I'm still a little iffy on whether or not those things have uh, long term economic viability. And some of the industry analysts of the finance industry. Taking a look at that as well. It's it's fascinating, though, when you think about it. Hey, have this money, no interest. And you, by the way, you're not buying it from us. We're just financing it for you. So it's not like they're motivated for you to buy it, other than they get your information. And it's not a lot of information that they get. But what you're buying goes beyond just the seller in that case. So the seller agrees that, okay, these third-party finance companies that insert themselves in the online transaction, buy now, pay later, you understand by allowing that, Mr. Seller, you're allowing those third parties to capture what they're buying and send that to even your competitors or others who then use that and their analytics to run their business. That's brilliant. And so everybody gets something. What the seller gets is, well, I might sell more if a customer says, I don't have that all that money today, but let me pay for it over time and it's no interest. Okay, I'll do it. I can afford that. And what the third-party financer gets is payment for sending that information to other companies. And it, and it not, might not be other sellers of merchandise. It, it could be marketing companies and companies that compile all those analytics and statistics and then turn around and sell it to sellers. It, it really is incredible, if you think about it, how scientific that's become. It's not like, hey, let's, let's do an ad and hope that works. It's become way, way more sophisticated than that with all this data analytics we have now. 
Any forgiveness, says Mike in Collinsville on the ceasefire text line, of student loan debt should be paid by the schools that benefited from the funds, except that would bankrupt most of them. Mike, that's the problem. Now, the concept is reasonable, no doubt about that. Well, they, they can pay it off over time, just <laughs> like the students would have to. <laughs> oh, For life, my gosh. in some instances. That's true. It's life. Of course, then the taxpayers are financing it still, so... If I can't afford it, then I don't buy it on the ceasefire tax line. I think everybody has a different idea and concept of what I can afford it means. And that's not a bad thing. That's, you know, that's your right. Hmm. Just curious if you have any information that Canada has gone cashless to digital. I haven't heard that. I don't know the answer to that. You looking it up? Yeah, we might find something for you there. I haven't seen anything to that reef um, in that respect. Excuse me. I don't know that it's become official doctrine in Canada, but there have been conversations with leaders like Trudeau and them that have laid out timelines for when they would hope to achieve a cashless society. I want to say it was 2030 was the number they were throwing around. Yeah. Isn't society mostly cashless now? I mean, overwhelmingly, statistics show, data shows that transactions... Well, in fairness, Canadian money is funny. It's kind of funny to start with. I mean, with. The, the $1 is not a dollar, it's a coin called a loony, because it's got a loon on the back <laughs> of it. And $2 is a coin that has two different types of metal, and it's called a toonie. <laughs> so they carry around change for their $1 and $2 transactions. Oh, Lord. Does the loony, is that an image of Trudeau? As in L-O-O? <laughs> In some cases, they'll say interest-free for a year, but they will set you up on two years of payments. Yeah, I've, I've seen that, um, but you understand that. Best Buy is one that comes to mind that sort of popularized that approach. I mean, Amazon has a payment plan you can sign up for where they you do. get a card through them. Just like any, I mean, Belk, you can get a Belk card. JCPenney, you can get a JCPenney card. There are many retailers and and other people in the retail space that offer lines of credit, whether it's through a card or through a payment plan or whatever. It's a lucrative business. Loaning people money is a lucrative business. That's what you're doing. So, I mean, have, having a so many years interest-free is, is pretty common. You know that going into it, and if you don't want to pay any interest, well, then pay it off within that time period. Simple as that. And, and they all have systems now where you can set auto-draft payment. So you don't mess up, because if you, if you don't, then the interest kicks in, if you don't pay it off in that interest-free time period. And in some of those contracts, that's retroactive as well. So That's how I got in trouble with a credit card in college. Well, there you go. Uh, let's see here. Uh, somebody else had something. Who gets stuck with a bad debt for non-payment? says Bob in Itawamba. And Bob, are you talking about... The buy now, pay later apps. Yeah, they do. The uh, now, now, they may have some sort of agreement that I'm not aware of with the retailer. 
where it comes back on them. I'm not sure. But, you know, there is a soft inquiry on your credit, and that includes on your bank account if you're supporting or intend to make the payments with whatever bank account you give them, and it could be a credit card. But they're going to check that out. All that's done behind the scenes, online, real time, to make sure that um, you're credit worthy, essentially. So I haven't seen what their defaults look like, um, but I suspect that to the extent that 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 whole environment has endured, it must be they must be doing pretty well. And so that's amazing if you think about it. All that's done behind the scenes, real time. Yes, I like the pay in four option. Okay. What's your information? If you've already used it before, I think just your phone number or email gives them access. If not, you've got to fill out some other information, and, and they tell you in the terms and conditions, we're going to do a soft inquiry on you, and they go do that real-time, come back, says, yep, you're approved, or maybe you're not approved. Just to stick with Klarna, since we were talking about yeah. them earlier, which, by the way, it was Maya Rudolph, is the SNL actress that was in that commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jason on the Power text line, let us know. They say if... Uh, if you don't make a payment on time, it's pretty straightforward. They will try again in a couple days, and if that payment fails, they will mail you a statement. Okay. You'll have 15 days to pay on that statement, and if you don't, they'll just pass it on to the debt collection. Okay. So it, it dings your credit. You get collecting a, a collection ding on your credit report, and but more importantly, a debt collector hounds the hell out of you. Till you pay, or they, they then you'll likely pay a lot more, and then or if not, you get a judgment against you as well. Right, happens. and that pretty much assures if you ever go apply for credit again, while that judgment's on your credit report, you ain't getting a loan, buying a car, or whatever house, whatever the case may be. And they may wind up garnishing your wages. Correct. That's absolutely right. So, and I'm quite sure all that is in the agreement that you click through and probably don't read, but that's all in accordance with law. Uh, Bob says, thanks. Appreciate it. Yep, Bob, for tuning in as well. Johnny in West Point says, good rule to go by. Ask yourself if it is a want or a need. Johnny, I hear you, but you know what? If you only bought what you needed, the economy would crash. You understand? If, if you only bought what you needed, only bought what they needed. That's what I mean. Yeah, because now <laughs> a lot of people say, "I really need that eighty thousand dollar Corvette or whatever it is." I could use a million examples, right? So who's to decide what you want, and need? But gosh, what do you work for and and uh, earn income for if you don't splurge? If you can, now I totally agree. You've got to take care of. The critical things first, and if you're raising a family and have a household, you got to make sure everybody's got the necessities of life before you go find something else. That's why it's such a big issue that more and more people are buying their groceries on credit. It's one thing to splurge on something and buy now, pay later, spread it out, because you're going to gain enjoyment out of that, and that's what you're paying for. Having to buy now, pay later on groceries means you don't have enough to meet your needs, let alone your wants. And, and you don't know the story there. It's because you simply don't make enough to afford groceries and you got to finance it, or are you spending your income on things other than groceries so you can eat? 
We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studios. We thank you so much for joining us today. Thomas in Greenwood says, Dave Ramsey does not approve of y'all shenanigans. Because we never said the word envelopes. <laughs> Dave, uh, I, I don't know. I sort of agree with some of his stuff. Don't agree. I, I honestly think it's it just depends on the person. I really do. In the situation, in the case. I mean, he, if it were up to him, you'd never buy anything, honestly. <laughs> Just, Unless it came out of a specific envelope. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I make uh, fun. I shouldn't. I'd, I've seen maybe a grand total of seven minutes of his content, yeah. mainly because the few times I've actually seen clips, it seems like the people asking him questions are just trying to one-up each other with how insane they've allowed their finances to become? I agree. My from Corinth says, we paid off our house in 2018-19. Since then, we pay cash debit card for everything. If we don't have cash, we don't buy. We even run our small business, small hotshot, pardon me, transport business on cash principle. Two work trucks and two trailers, clear. Hard work and discipline goes a long way. That That's great, Mike. Uh, congratulations, and I hope, I hope your business is doing well. But it's not for everybody. I mean, I I can certainly point to my business situation. Don't mind saying it's public record. Tens of millions of dollars of debt to acquire companies. But we had confidence that we could leverage those funds and make the company more valuable. And we did. Now, that's a risk. There's no doubt. And it's hard to sleep at night when you got shudder to think about how much it was and the interest rate we paid on that because it was unsecured cash flow debt. Most people would say, what? It's 10 and 3 quarters, 11% change interest with what's called a payment in kind, which just means they increase the principal on the anniversary, even though you don't get any more money. You owe me a million last year? No, nah, it's a million two this year. That's what you sign up for. It's still cheaper than selling equity. It's, it gets into the wonky weeds there on, on financial decisions, but I don't regret that. I mean, you boil it down to the simple saying, you have to spend money to make money in That's most right. instances. And, and some people are, are opposed to that, and that's fine. And they, they're not comfortable in those situations. Um. I, I was. I understood what I was getting into. And, uh, you know, faced uh, uh, the uh, the potential consequences, and that specter hung over our head daily. We knew that. But we also had a high degree of confidence in our team and our, our strategy, our approach to business, and we felt like that we could leverage those funds and make the business more valuable, and, and we did, and a lot of people benefited from that, including our customers. 
uh, and of course the the people that uh, worked in the company, and of course those who provided the funds, loaned us the money. It's called unsecured cash flow debt from the private equity community. You don't go to a bank, obviously, and say, I'd like to borrow $10 million to buy a company. They'd laugh at you if you did that, and they should, honestly. Now, Unless you had $100 million in their bank. That's right. Now, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's why you don't do that. And by the way, did you see that goofy CEO on the Hill yesterday? He's blaming the Fed. They said inflation was transitory. We didn't think in the Treasury, we didn't think that we were going to face a situation where the, the inflation was going to be a lot more sticky and cause us to be upside down on our bonds, our long-term bonds, and thus we went. So it's your fault, not our mismanagement. It's your fault. I was so mad hearing that guy up there. Are you kidding me? It was totally on you. Poor decision-making really made me mad. Uh, let's see. I use my credit card to pay a few bills and buy groceries, too. I pay it off monthly, then use the points to purchase Christmas presents. Okay, good plan. That's on the ceasefire text line. And just remember that when you pay your credit card bill off, if you max it out or you exceed certain thresholds from a credit scoring perspective, if you wait till after you get the bill, that's also after the credit card company is reported to the credit bureau, and so your good payment habits are not reflected, other than you're not late, which does certainly help uh, with your credit score. But the, the best scenario for your credit score is pay it off or pay down on it, usually below 30 to 35 percent of the um, the limit on your card before the bill is sent, before your statement date. Do that. Bring that balance down because that's what then gets reported and that will boost your credit score fairly significantly. When you're above 35% or so of total available credit, that will ding your credit score. That's just the way the algorithms work. We are taking a break right here. It's top of the hour. The noon hour is upon us. That means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. We're coming right back. We've got Ryan Hunt, co-founder and COO of Schloop, a footwear manufacturer in Meridian at 1220. And we're coming right back. And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well Studios, Wheel in the Sky, 1977 from the Infinity album by Journey. We thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, our good friend Representative Price Wallace says, "Did you see Fetterman? He was. <laughs> Did you catch any of that questioning the SVB president? That was painful. Good grief! Incoherent." 
at a minimum. Gosh, man. Uh, yeah, Price says, I would think you'd have your questions prepared before. It was embarrassing, but he wasn't wearing his hoodie with the smiley emoji. Yeah, he he at least kind of halfway looked like a U.S. senator, but he's still clueless, and it's 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 sad, honestly, that this is what we're relying on to effectively manage the country. I'm not even sure it made sense to bring you know I. I'm in the camp that says, unless somebody's breaking the law here, it's none of the government's business. And, you know, it's, I mean, I know they may say, well, we, we need to understand what happened because this, this could be an indicator of more widespread systemic problems. But bottom line is, they just ran the bank into the ground with poor decision-making, and much of that decision-making was around supporting all these green projects and pie-in-the-sky technology startups that are not a place for commercial banks. We, we already know that. I mean, and you didn't have a risk manager. Now, law doesn't require you to have one. But the bottom line is, there's no accountability for stupidity here is what happened. It was just dumb what they did, and this guy never seemed to acknowledge that. It's the same old thing. Of course, he's part of a left-wing cult movement in this country where nobody's responsible for anything they do. It's always somebody else's fault. You know, if you're looting a store, well, they're entitled to that. Their society has caused them to live a life of poverty. So they're entitled to just go into the store and help themselves. Where Remember the one we shared with there was a kind of a mob robbing of a convenience store. Remember that caught on video? And it turns out, and it was teenagers, and it was planned. And they just rushed the store, ransacked it, and then the video showed they were taking beer and tobacco. Oh, they're poor. They need beer and tobacco. Again, the left just can't be honest about that. No, it's stealing. It doesn't matter what the hell it is, it's stealing. And we've got to enforce the laws and punish people who steal. Or they keep stealing. And the law-abiding people pay for it. But that same government would probably get the store owner in hot water if he allowed any of those teenagers in there to buy the beer or tobacco. Yes, that's exactly right. Oh, they throw the book at them then. No doubt about it. it it's, it's so, there's so many double standards, so many conflicts, so much hypocrisy. Speaking of which, please tell our audience about the anti-capitalist <laughs> cafe in Toronto. You recall we reported this. You didn't hear a lot about it. And I think we even played some sound bites from, like, the founders of it, where they were discussing why this was such a great idea. Please tell the audience what happened to the anti-capitalist cafe. Yeah, it was just a little over a year ago. We get in the time machine here. The, we go back to a year ago where we were talking about how it's 
asinine to form an anarchist cafe where you pay what you can. And that was the name can. of it, by the way. The Anarchist Cafe. Oh, yeah, in Toronto. <laughs> and a little over a year ago, right here on this program, we pointed out several reasons why it would probably fail within a year or two. Fast forward to today, about a year and a month later, it's out of business because the owner can't make enough money to pay his bills. <laughs> the owner, Gabrielle Sims Fewer, called his short-lived business a huge success. <laughs> right. <laughs> the locals said that the prices were high in shop, calling the owner hypocritical for charging much more when he claimed to be against capitalist values and desires. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> they also got criticized uh, because the cafe was on stolen land. <laughs> oh, I had a ball going through the Google reviews of the cafe because, yeah, there are some people that bought into it wholeheartedly. But then you have some people that are like, the hot chocolate was good, but quite pricey. And it's weird that they had more options for merch than actual drinks. Oh, okay. That is weird. That's kind of like Bernie charging for his book or something, right? <laughs> his book about denouncing capitalism. Oh, yeah, this is a rich one, though. <laughs> the Anarchist Cafe succumb to the realities of the market. Because what they really want to do is force you to do business with them. You must part with your money in the way government sees fit. And they will allocate it for you. Another review. I was just passing by here and I got a coffee, which tasted horrible. <laughs> it was an interesting place, so I looked it up. And then the <laughs> owner responded, I'm sorry you didn't like the coffee. It's very popular, but admittedly doesn't taste like, quote unquote, normal coffee. <laughs> what the heck were you selling? Oh, that's so, <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> Uh, Malcolm from Tishomingo says, the difference is that you don't operate with an entitlement mentality. Hard work and ownership go a long way in business ventures. There's no doubt about that. And I'll, I'll just repeat my view there. Is the market rewards value. It doesn't care about how hard you work. You can't say, oh, I need to be in business and I need to make money because I work hard. And nope, doesn't care. Now, that being said... It's almost impossible to produce anything of value without working hard. But the working hard piece, while I believe is inextricably linked to the outcome of producing value, the fact is the market don't care how hard you work. You don't go spend your money. So I think I'll go down and buy something from them. They, they work hard. No, you go buy something because you need it, because you seek value in whatever it is you want to buy. And that's this simple concept is lost on the people in Washington. It just seems like it's lost. It's a very simple concept. And there's a swath of the population generally made up by made up of young men that are frankly being lied to by social media influencers with this whole quote unquote grind set mentality where they'll 
they'll do stupid things like my day start my first day starts at 6 a.m. and goes to noon and my second day starts at noon and goes to 6 p.m. my third day starts at 6 p.m. and goes to midnight which means in the seven days you've been working I've worked 21 and in a month I'm gonna eat your shorts and in a year it, it just this constant nonsense that doesn't actually create any value it just puts you into a routine but they've been lied to and told that, oh, this is going to make you a millionaire. This is going to do this, that, and the other and make your life meaningful. And it's like, no, no, it's not. That's true. That's very true. And they are, are being hoodwinked on that deal. On the ceasefire tax line, CC and Senatobia says, in quotes, representing the speech, the statement coming from others, give me $500 and I'll tell you why money is bad. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Them doggone capitalists, says Tim from Tupelo. Oh, wow. Was there, uh, was told by a logger friend once, if I'm not in debt, I'm not making money. Interesting. And, and look, I mean, that's how a lot of agricultural and farming and, and those kind of industries work. No doubt. I mean, debt. The farmer has to take out a loan in order to have crops. No doubt about it. Nine times out of ten. The Right. And the market simply, well, the economy does not prosper at the level in this country it has without debt. It just doesn't. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to go out in debt to be prosperous, but different people are just able to handle it differently in different ways and, and manage it responsibly and leverage it to enrich themselves or make their company prosperous or their people. You've got to balance risk and reward. Right, no doubt about it. That's, that's the beauty of capitalism. Speaking of which, we're coming right back with Ryan Hunt, the co-founder and COO of Schloop. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Jackson Brown bumping us into this segment here on Middays. We are in the Element Wealth Studios. We've got Ryan Hunt, co-founder and COO of Sloop, will be joining us in a few. I got an email. I got to get to this. I received an email, I think it was Friday, maybe it was Monday, and it was just a question about the debt ceiling situation and what had happened under Donald Trump. And uh, with respect to the debt ceiling, because it does have to be raised, we continue to have to increase it. So that it did happen under Trump, I think, three times. But each time it did, it was also associated with omnibus spending bills to essentially fund the government. It included uh, funding the government plus raising the debt ceiling in conjunction in the same legislation. So when the... White House press secretary says, oh, but Trump did it three times. It's a little different situation. They're not being totally 
honest and forthcoming about that. But Ryan Hunt, COO and co-founder of Schloop, is now in the Element Wealth Studios. Ryan, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alex. All right. So tell us, uh, tell us about the um, uh, the company. Uh, I went to your website last night and took a look. You're in Meridian, right? We are. Yeah, we're in Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, we are a local and sustainable footwear innovation and manufacturing company. How'd you come up with the idea to create? and produce uh, sustainable footwear. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, so for the past 12 years, uh, we've also had a company called Algix that's based out of Meridian. Mm -hmm. And we've been on a mission to turn air and water pollution into a replacement for fossil fuels using algae. Hmm. So algae has been a a vehicle for us to to use as a sustainable material. It's uh, more environmentally friendly than fossil fuels. It's a renewable product. And uh, for the past seven years, we've been working with footwear brands all over the world to incorporate algae into their products to improve their metrics of sustainability. So the amount of CO2 removed from the atmosphere, the amount of water that's being cleaned, and we use that uh, as a way to improve the overall impacts of the product. How'd you get into this? What's your background? Uh, My background's in physics and bioengineering at the University of Georgia, Mm -hmm. and when we went to go build a factory, we left Athens back in 2014. We uh, moved to Meridian, and we built our first compounding factory there, uh, producing the sustainable pellets that are, again, blends of algae and different polymers, and those the algae gets shipped to the footwear brands. And Mm -hmm. so we learned over the past several years was that the factories that make shoes for all the brands that you've ever heard of, the vast majority of those, 90-plus percent of those, are in China. In, hmm. in Vietnam, hmm. and so low cost labor, I assume. Low cost of labor, uh, less environmental controls, mm-hmm. a variety of, of reasons. But um, but yeah, it's been been there for several decades now. And so when we came to scale our our material, we realized that we had to be you know it wasn't like doing a deal with one of the brands directly was enough. You also had to uh, go and, and do deals with you know dozens and dozens of, of factories mm-hmm. in, in China that are you know Chinese owned, operated, managed. So um, that became a, a roadblock really. Um, between shipping and the, t- and the trade wars and the tariffs and the, co- and the COVID issues and the supply chain issues and the inflationary issues, all those have stacked up against us um, and has been a major headwind. Um, hmm. And so in 2021, we kind of made the decision that, you know, if we're going to be successful with this, we've got to take control of the supply chain. Yeah. And so that uh, kind of sent us down this path of being able to design prototype and manufacture our own footwear, uh, you know, similar products that you'd find from other brands. Uh, In fact, our goal is to work with footwear brands and help them accelerate this transition to a more uh, sustainable and local uh, production manufacturing supply chain. And so by, but when I say sustainable, we're specifically talking about uh, ways that we can decrease the environmental and societal impacts of a product's manufacturing process Gotcha. Why Meridian? How'd you end up there? Yeah, that's a very good question. So uh, it was a bit of chance and a, and a bit of strate- strategic um, alignment. We were looking for a, an area that was nearby sources of algae back in you know 2013, and we found that Meridian happens to be kind of in between the catfish farms of Alabama and the catfish farms of Mississippi. 
And we found some industrial real estate there, and we found that the community had economically depressed uh, an environment, and so that allowed us to secure some funding from the SBA mm-hmm. uh, to to basically build a factory and put people to work. Wow. So uh, not something you hear every day, that we're looking for a location close to algae. That's not very, very common <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, to on the lists of uh, business no. needs when you're starting up a company. So I'm assuming then that the catfish farms produce algae. Obviously, there's water there, but yeah. I mean, so is that just a byproduct of the farming process? Exactly. Yeah. So it's a uh, unwanted byproduct, okay. I would say. It's so actually you, a nuisance. And you have a process for harvesting that and then transporting that yeah, to the that, factory? And that goes back to my graduate work. We were in, okay. And the early work of Algix was building mobile algae harvesting systems. Wow. Those, those systems have now been deployed beyond just catfish farms. Um, we've done environmental restoration projects for lake cleanups. Uh, yeah. We've worked with utility companies that are using algae to clean their water more efficiently, mm. using less energy, uh, capturing CO2, capturing uh, phosphorus, nitrogen, all the, the pollutants that you know wastewater treatment is supposed to fix. Algae does a really good job at doing that. Okay. So it improves the economics of the utilities. And so we're seeing a, a slow but a forward progress in utilizing algae as a technology that can improve Incredible. the environment. So it's, it's win-win. Uh, in that particular, I mean, it's the ultimate form of of efficiency, I guess, when you think about uh, unwanted byproducts that are now being used as input raw material into another process to produce something. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's, well, that's right. the idea. That's the idea. And so, so the algae is a solar process, solar powered process. Yeah. Sunlight is 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 activates photosynthesis in the plant in, in the algae, which is just single celled plants. Yeah. So by using that biomass as a replacement for petroleum, we're in fact you know using solar energy to capture carbon and turn it into a replacement for plastics. I got you. So you're cleaning the air at the same time. Yes, Incredible. Sir. All right. So the next question I think I'd have to know about is what else can we expect this process to be uh, used in manufacturing? Where else? Shoes today. Yeah, we've explored a lot of different avenues. Obviously, things like uh, biofuels were one of the first areas that we we were funded for by the Department of Energy back in the day, and that was kind of what started the research. But um, you know, biodegradable packaging has been a a hot topic, especially with all the microplastic issues in the world. Yep. Um, We've also been looking at durable applications. So we've been working with some automotive brands. You know, uh, been working with. not just footwear accessories, but also like sports products, so uh, water sports, traction pads for surfboards. Uh, we've done grips for bicycles and trekking poles, and so there's any any sort of rubbery type yeah. material we can incorporate the algae into and, and replace a percentage of the total fossil fuel based material. But at this point, it's not 100 percent yet. Unfortunately, okay. we're trying so, to get there, but it's going to take some time. Maybe sort of flexible and pliable. Has to be flexible, has to be pliable. Yeah. The type of applications that yeah. we're going after. Well, this is great because this is something we talk about on the program all the time. This is just human innovation solving human human problems and creating value for society at the same time. Well, that's the idea here. And so, when we looked at the the Schlup concept, yeah. one of the really important things was that you know we have a, a product, a commodity that we all put on our feet every day. Sure. And none of it's made really here in the U.S. Yeah. Ninety plus percent is made abroad. Well, that's the other benefit. 
And so if we can go through and help improve the supply chain and help streamline the process and help reduce the amount of time it takes to make design a product and make a product and get it shipped here, uh, that's a win-win for the brands and for the consumer. No doubt. Um, and so that's one of our big goals with the Sloop Factory is demonstrating the process and demonstrating the capability that we can actually make these products here in the U.S. We're not, we don't have to be reliant upon cheap labor in, in other countries. And uh, we can make products that are beautiful. We can make products that are very durable uh, and that are interesting. They're not, it's not just necessarily the same old stuff that you see on the shelves. We can take more risk because you're not having to buy a whole 40-foot container of that at one yeah, time. Coming right? across the ocean. Yeah, yeah, so you can expensive too. Yeah, so you can you can start with smaller amounts, and you can start with something that you know. So for us, the, the what we're opening, we hope, is allowing access to this platform for the medium to small brands. I see the big the big brands. They've got the power. They've got the supply chain. Sure. They've got the capital. They've got the resources. They've got the history. But to break into this market as a new company, as a startup company, or as a new brand, it's very challenging. And you know, we've 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 been down that road before, and we we saw the challenges, we saw the hurdles, and we also saw how getting a sustainable product in was not so easy. Yeah, so no doubt. We're hoping to accelerate that and really facilitate that for we're, our customers. Uh, we're out of time here, but where can you buy the products? Uh, so right now, you can go learn more about our factory at shaloop.it. It's S-H-L-O-O-P dot I-T. And right now, we're only selling to brands and to okay. retailers. So okay. you can't buy direct from us yet, but in the future, we will activate that. Okay. Uh, one final question before you go. Yes, How many sir. employees do you have? We have 19 employees now, you, so we're growing fast. You're growing, I assume, right? We're growing, yeah. We, hope, we grow. hope to have about 50 to 60 uh, in the next one, you know, 12 months or so. Got it. Congratulations. Great idea, and thanks for coming to Mississippi. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studios. Half an hour left today. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Love is but a song we sing, fears we will die. Straight out of the 60s, the Youngbloods get together. On the C Spire text line, Rick in Gulfport says, Upper Greenville Avenue in North Dallas was restaurant row for moneyed suburbanites for decades. But 90% of startups there didn't make it in six months. My niece and her fiancé, a professional cook, opened a restaurant in far northern Sweden in Lapland. It's less risky than the United States. Hmm. Okay. I, I've never actually looked at that data to see sort of what the, what the failure rate is of startups in the countries like that. I'm not sure. I know that Sweden is a high-tax, high-spend country. The um, 
The Swedes do believe, as I recall, reading some reports on this, that their younger folks think that it's a good place to start up a business, that there are good opportunities there, uh, more than in America. But I wonder if that's because of the garbage that young Americans are told that we're just evil and wicked and the deck is stacked against you and systemically racist and all the other evils that you can conjure up and attribute or certainly associate with the country. Maybe they don't do that in Sweden. I'm thinking they probably don't. They probably take great pride in their nation and they teach that to their young and in their schools. We don't seem to do that anymore here. We seem to be more concerned about denouncing it, condemning it, apologizing for it. Looks like at least part of their success may be predicated on their passage of, when was this? 1993, the Competition Act that deregulated industries including taxis, electricity, telecommunications, railways, and domestic air travel to Hmm. increase competition. And while taxes are certainly higher and the spending is greater from a government perspective, I think it's, it's a misnomer to describe Sweden as a socialist nation. There are some who believe and would argue that it's more capitalist and economically free then is this country. And and an example could be the legislation you just discussed, you just presented. Yeah, I'm getting this from The Atlantic. They go on to say the reforms which began in 1991 have lowered their top marginal income tax rate from 85% to 57%, and today the tax system is relatively flat, meaning that most individuals pay relatively high tax rates. Yeah, across the board. It's not... not it, this country, by far, has the most lopsided progressive uh, ta- income tax system of any. I mean, that's just fact. And we've shared that, that data quite a bit uh, on the program here. So, But that, that is interesting. And there, um, I, I see a report here that Sweden is more entrepreneurial than the U.S. This is from 2019, and that's... Um, just some statistics there. Interesting. But you're right. It, too, pointed to the what they call the micro-based reform package of the 90s, that they say that spurred the economic activity uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective after that. Rick says, well, the rent on the restaurant is tied to profits through a government program in Sweden. Interesting. Um, I do know that in the past... There are there are retail uh, developments that do charge what they call an overage. That's that's part. I mean, I remember being involved in those contracts when we were cranking our business up. IBM required us to be in a retail setting, which was lasted a year because then it was realized, oh yeah, this is not going to just be where you need a storefront. These computers, but. Their overage was you pay rent, and then if your sales exceed a certain value, you pay a percentage of the of the excess sales as rent. Call it overage. 
which would been would have been devastating for us. We had to negotiate that out. But uh, but that similar sounds like Rick to kind of similar in that it's not a fixed lease, rather it's a it's a percentage of profits, which means that but it's paid to the government, which means the government's somehow subsidizing the property itself, whomever owns the property, because that you relied on the um, the lessees to pay rent as a percentage of profits without being guaranteed a fixed lease payment, rent payment, I can see how that would be a problem. But if the government steps in and kind of covers that, maybe that works. Swedish people are not as opinionated as Americans, says Jerry in Waynesboro. Mm. Yeah, I was about to say, there is an argument made in this article by a professor at the Utrecht University School of Economics saying that Swedes have high levels of trust in one another relative to other countries, which means they're less likely to require complicated contracts to collaborate. Interesting. Hmm. Well, they also go on to say that it's hard for Sweden to have to find workers from outside the country because the middle class income taxes are so high relative to those other countries. Something else I think does figure in here is that Sweden is a fairly homogeneous nation. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's not the melting pot diverse country this one is. And I and I don't know, but I for sure, but I'm sort of betting they're fairly strict on who they let in the country as well. But most of those nations, just just their formation was not their their coming into being, their creation was not the way this nation was created, with a bunch of people that came from all over the place. Honestly, and there's there's plenty of benefit to that. There's no doubt. I think we as a nation have have uh, enjoyed the benefits of that melting pot, that diversity diversity in our culture. But countries like Sweden, they're small in nature. I don't know what the population is, but it's probably less than most of our many of our states. Ten and a half million people. I was going to guess eight. But, um, okay, ten and a half. Well, California's 40. I mean, you, it's not – you could look at the list of states in the United States. I don't know how many have more than ten people, maybe half of them or so. Ten million, excuse me. But I think there is something to that. Ben from Madison switching gears a little bit. Gerard, any chance you think you can convince the lieutenant governor and candidate McDaniel to sit down on your show and go over some policies facing our state? I know you could cut through a lot of the empty rhetoric and get down to the facts. I'd like nothing better, uh, honestly, Ben. Um, you know, I have I have uh, certainly approached the lieutenant governor about that, and th- there's not surprising no interest. That's fairly typical of an incumbent in a in a primary. So I, it's not unique to the lieutenant governor. But I would welcome that opportunity. And um, can assure you, should that avail itself, we will focus on the issues and the challenges facing our state, and we will discuss ideas from the candidates on how to address and solve those problems and move the state forward. Um, 
right now. <clears throat> we seem to be a bit in mudslinging mode. I saw that the senator posted something on social media today about the uh, campaign finance report that Senator McDaniel filed that uh, I think was called into question by the lieutenant governor, and then it's subsequently been been uh, discovered, been revealed, that there were some issues with the technology, the website specifically, operated by the Secretary of State where that information is entered. And, and so that has, uh, that has precipitated a, a, a bit of mudslinging by the candidates, and the senator points out in this particular post I'm looking at, um, refers to three different lies, Delbert Lie 1, Delbert Lie 2, Delbert Lie 3. Of course, Delbert, I think his campaign kind of jumped the gun on the campaign finance report. Honestly, I don't know how many people that are voting really care about that. I know I kind of tacitly care about it. I, obviously, I want candidates to to be uh, people of high integrity, I think that's incredibly important, if not maybe the most important. Um, but I'd really like to focus on the core issues facing the state, and I agree with you on that, Ben, and maybe we can make that happen. We'll see about that. Coming right back with the final segment here on Midday. Stay with us. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. <laughs> On the ceasefire text line, Stephen from Greenville says regulations and lack of workforce and lack of work ethic within the workforce creates a tremendous cost that hinders business startups and growth. I think there's some truth to that, Stephen. Um, but I do also think that there are plenty of workers in our country that do the practice a, uh, a strong work ethic and do provide value. And I think the, the most egregious example of what he's talking about is you see these stories where a kid sets up a lemonade stand and some angry Karen down the cul-de-sac calls the <laughs> cops on them because they don't have the right permits. I, I agree. Now, I, I no doubt about it, and in fact, I think Contrary to, I think, uh, I believe what is is popularly believed, that what really stimulated the economy under the during the Trump years more than the Trump tax cuts was the the uh, stripping uh, out so many regulations in place. I think really paring down the the over regulatory state was as big a contributor, if not a bigger contributor, in economic prosperity during the Trump era. And, of course, when Biden took over, it was the first damn thing he did 
was just reverse many of those and then add to it, and it's continued to do so. Like with the gas stoves crap and the power plants crap, every bit of that costs money, and it, which gets passed on to us, the consumers. So on that basis, Stephen, I totally ag- agree with you, uh, no doubt uh, about it. I mean, like tire manufacturers, one of the nonsensical regulations they've added with the whole, you got to have better cars for the environment. Well, EVs are heavier, which means they degrade their tires faster. And now the greenies are saying, well, those tires degrading faster is worse for the environment. Oh, my gosh. So, you know the old inflation reduction plan? The most farcically misnamed legislation. I have to point that out every time. Still waiting for that. When's that inflation reduction plan kicking in? So there was a provision in there that was signed into law. That was last August. Hard to believe that. That provides grants to rural clean energy projects. $11 billion worth of them. And I wonder how many of the rural electric cooperatives and other utilities energy providers in the state of Mississippi will apply for some of this money. Now, of course, this is just for clean energy. And uh, only clean energy, so-called clean energy projects would be eligible. And I haven't really looked at what all that includes, but at the highest level, it's when it's the it's the laundry list, right? Wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, and other renewable energy projects. $11 billion. We'll see how much uh, of those are actually issued and implemented and, and used to make those investments in these projects. Be interesting. You know, El Nino... El Nino. (laughs) It's almost here, and the scientists say it's going to get hot. In the next five years, we are likely to see at least one of those years being the hottest on record. That's what they're predicting. How about that? In other news, in the gender ideology category, we've got a group of sorority sisters. You've seen this at the University of Wyoming? And... I believe it's Kappa Kappa Gamma. They're suing the university for accepting a transgender woman, six foot two, two ninety or something like that, into the sorority. Seven women in the sorority filed a lawsuit against the university and the individual. I'm not really sure why the individual, what the legal basis of that is. Six foot two, 260, joined last September. And uh, referred to under the male pseudonym in the suit, Terry Smith, been living outside the sorority house, but was expected to move in to the house in the coming year. It's a weird, gut-wrenching feeling that every time I leave my room, there's a possibility that I walk past him in the hall, one of the sorority sisters said on a podcast with Megan Kelly. This is nuts and upside down as it can be. It seems like that's a violation of the First Amendment where you have, and I'm sure they'll invoke that, or 
or um, point to that in their lawsuit, the, the freedom to assemble, assemble like you want as well. We're out of time here today. Appreciate you joining us. Back in with you tomorrow. Stay safe. God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.